everyone. I feel like between like worship and the lights on that bumper video, I am just like hyped right now. Yeah, who else is like, like we're awake now? Yeah. Uh, I joked last hour that I feel like after all this, I could go run a, like a half marathon or at least walk around my block a couple times. So, <laughs> hey, if we haven't met before, my name is Joe. I'm one of the uh, pastors on our teaching team here at Kesed, and I also get the, the truly wonderful privilege of leading our student ministries. And I just want to say thanks for being here. If this is your first time, I just, I want to say thank you. Like from the bottom of my heart, like I, I don't take it lightly how much courage it takes to walk into a room like this. And we just thank you for spending time with us. And if you're a part of our Kessid family, I appreciate the privilege of being with you. I'm glad you are all here. Now, before we hop in, I just have one really, really, really important question here. Uh, for those of you that know me and have seen me the last couple months, um, I look like a lot cleaner, right? And um, I'm just curious, uh, who here has missed the beard I grew for like seven months that looked like a rabbi or a sage coming down the mountain? <laughs> who here misses it? Thumbs up if you miss it. Thumbs down if you look, or you're, you're kind of like, it looked like a rat's nest was hanging off of your face with gross insulation or something like that. <laughs> okay, we like this one. All right, all right, fine, fine. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so um, let me do this really quick. I just, uh, today we're gonna be talking about something important and I just want to approach it with a ton of humility. So I think in order to do that, uh, let me take a moment and let me just go to the Lord in prayer. If you wouldn't mind joining me. Father, I thank you that you already through your spirit have been at work, that your work doesn't stop. You don't grow tired of that work. You don't grow weary. And that work, Lord, is making us into the best versions of us that you created us to be. And I thank you that long before we stepped foot in this room, that work was happening. And I just pray, Lord, that today at this moment, in a way that only you can, this, this, this gathering today would, would join in with that work. And would we leave, Lord, so grateful for who you are making us to be and the work that you want to do in us so you can accomplish the work you want to do through us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, uh, we've been in a series called The Work. And let me just give you a quick statement about what this series entails. The Work is a series about empowering people to embody the work of Jesus outside the walls of the church. Now, if you were here week one, Danny kicked it off by saying that many of us uh, believe a misconception that most of the work of the ministry happens inside of the church. But the truth is, according to Paul, that, most, that the work actually happen, happens outside of the church. And that the point is, is that this, this space, this gathering is meant to equip us for that work that happens outside of the church. And so we've been diving into those spaces and those conversations in order to say, man, there's a lot of work that God wants to accomplish, not through people with pastor as their title, but through you. And that God has something big in store for you just where you are. And so we've been diving into it, and I love it because we're joining in with a conversation that's been happening in church history for a long time. John Calvin, the, the reformer, says this, according to the scriptural perspective, work becomes a way station of spiritual witness and service, a daily traveled bridge between theology and social ethics. In other words, work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. And fulfill, in fulfilling his job, he will either accredit or violate the Christian witness. Whew. Like, 
John Calvin's got some bars. Like, that's, like, amazing. <laughs> but one, thing, one line that just really stands out to me there is that our work is sacred stewardship. And I want to just quickly acknowledge my own inadequacy in sitting up here because I know a lot of people stand up here with a microphone and we act like we have the authority to, to tell you, like, hey, work harder, try harder. And I know for some of you, you feel stuck in your work. You feel unseen, you feel unnoticed, whether you're a mom who feels underappreciated or a dad who stays at home with the kids and there isn't a ton of raises or encouragement that comes along with that. Whether you're a business owner, a principal, whether you're a teacher, for some of us here, we feel stuck, and just this idea of trying harder is not enough. But this whole series has just been an opportunity to talk about how we can sacredly steward the opportunities and roles that God has called us into and all the things that he wants to do. But, but for those of us that, that don't feel like we're in that space, I want to begin today by asking this question, what do we do when the work we are doing feels like it is in the way of embodying the work of Jesus. What do we do? What do we do when we feel like we're in our workspaces and those workspaces do not bring out the best in us? What do we do when we feel like we're in those workspaces and we are stuck and we can't see where God is in the midst of that work? What do we do when we're in those workspaces and we cannot see where God is working? What do we do? And we're going to dive into that conversation. And let me begin by uh, asking you this question. What was your first ever job? Not like your first job, like as in I got an easy bake oven and began selling like cookies to my grandparents. Not that kind of job. I mean like, uh, or not even like I grabbed the lawnmower and just went door to door asking people if I could mow their yard. I mean like, what was your first ever W-4 job? And I want you to, to, to just think about that job. And I want you to think, was it a bad job? Just in your own head. My first job was I was a dishwasher at Maxine's Global Cuisine in Stanwood, Washington. And I was dishwashing before I started following Jesus, and then I had this radical encounter with Jesus in which he changed my mind and my heart and, and totally reoriented my life. And then I was still a dishwasher, but every day I went to work as a dishwasher, it killed me inside. It killed me. Like, I left every day of work, like I was supposed to get off at 10, and because of restaurant business, which food service workers, you guys are saints, and literally, we, we were supposed to get off at 10, and next thing you know, I, I wouldn't be leaving until like 1.30. And I remember, because I'd bike to work, I'd get on my bike, and I just reeked of some weird combination of deep fryer oil and garlic. And no amount of Axe body spray could get rid of it. <laughs> And I remember just sitting in that kitchen alone, closing down the restaurant, just thinking to myself, God, this work is terrible. You have nothing for me here. And in some of that disillusionment and, and, and discouragement, I just was like, I'm done. I need to go find God what you have for me. And so I did what any responsible teenager would do. And I woke up the next morning and I texted my boss, I quit. <laughs> You business owners out there, I just want to let you know I'm so sorry on behalf of my younger self. <laughs> and I look back actually on that, that moment and I regret it because I think I missed an opportunity that God was probably doing something in me so he could accomplish something through me even there. 
and I wonder if I missed it. And God still was going to do whatever he wanted to do. I just didn't get to play a part. And I know for many of us here, we're in that place where we're like, I just hate what I do. I hate fulfilling my responsibilities because I don't feel like it's life-giving. I feel like it's not the kind of work I want to do. Now, um, I want to ask you today in our culture, uh, what is something that is culturally known as kind of a bad job? Like, what's a bad work environment? Uh, and as you're thinking, you might think, oh, well, culturally speaking, it's used car salesmen. Now, by the way, that's a total stereotype. Not every used car salesman is, a, is a, doing a bad job or bad work, but, but the stereotype uh, for many people is like, that's a bad job. And, and I had two friends in my life that have sold cars. One, his name is Johnny, and he, start, he didn't go to college. He didn't, he didn't get any formal education. He started in a car dealership, began selling cars, and was really good at it. And, and slowly was topping the sales, like the, for his sales team, he was, he was making the most commission and he was getting the most sales and he was moving up. But one thing started to happen for him. He started to realize that as he would help people purchase their vehicles and he would look at their financing options, he realized oh, a lot of people like aren't in a great position to purchase. And, and oftentimes he'd be incentivized to upsell them, to get them to get the, the, the nicer model or the more expensive version of the vehicle. And then one day, a certain couple came in, and he, sold, he was selling them a vehicle. And when he looked at their finances, he knew for certain the purchase of this vehicle was going to bankrupt them. He just knew it. And he still closed the sale. And that night, he like laid up at night because he, he just could not live with himself. He was like, I bankrupted a family. And so he, unlike me, turned in his two weeks' notice the next morning and was done and shifted jobs completely. And so, for him, was being a car salesman a bad job? Well, I have another friend, and his name's Isaac, and he also sold cars. And he started out actually uh, in, in like the detailing shop and washing cars, but then eventually he, he, he moved up to salesman, and he started selling. He was really personable, really, really good looking, to be honest with you. And he... <laughs> He literally was just like the same, like just dominating the sales team and, and just always on the top salesman in the company, so much so that he began to manage the whole sales team. And then as he did that, he began to manage multiple sales teams at multiple dealerships that this owner owned. And he was so good at it that he began to realize, I'm in a unique opportunity that I can literally have a voice in helping coach my salesmen on financial literacy and helping people make wise purchases. And next thing you know, they became a really reputable car dealership. And then moving on from there, he began to, to not only just care about what they were producing, but who they were. And he's now the CFO of a lot of car dealerships. Now, both of those men started out as car salesmen, and it's easy to stereotype and say it's a bad job, but I think for one of them, it was bad work. And for the other, it wasn't. And I want to dive into what's the difference today. Because for some of us here, we are called to be those car salesmen that can step in and help human flourishing. In order to, to talk about it, let's talk about our definition of work. Tim Keller describes it this way when he says, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. Tim Keller was a genius. And we love this definition. It's been our definition for the whole series because the point we want to highlight is our God, who's the creator working God, has invited us to, to bear his image in such a way that we're creating and working and producing. 
and therefore his beautiful creating heart spreads to the whole cosmos. But the problem is, is, is many of us don't feel like we're in positions to do that. And therefore, we have bad work. And this is my definition of bad work. Work becomes bad when it compromises the calling, gifting, and anointing God has given you. And in turn, it, it hinders human flourishing. It hinders humans thriving. That's my definition of bad work. And the reason why is, is I think it's in that order. One, work becomes bad when it compromises our giftings, callings, and anointings. We talked about this in week one. Uh, the point I'm making here is that God has something for you. That, that you are the only version of you that will ever exist that it's only you that has your unique set of gifts, callings, anointings, experiences, tragedies, traumas, stories. You are it. And therefore, you reflect an aspect of God that no other creature that has ever existed or will ever exist can. You are it. And therefore, we, we have not just a, a, a responsibility, but almost an obligation to discover what our gifts, callings, and anointings are in order to display the creator God who uniquely created you and me. But the problem is, let me give you two, two reasons why that's hard. One, that takes work to discover your identity your gifts, callings, and anointings. We think it takes like a little like BuzzFeed personality test. And the thing about it is, is it takes arduous work to dive into your story and your hurts and your experiences and your traumas and your passions, how you see the world. It takes work to dive in. And so we have to begin what we call here doing the work in ourselves if we want to discover what the work is God has for us out there. It starts in here. And I think for you and for me, many of us, um, that work is really hard. It's arduous. And I want you to know we, we recognize that. It's really tough to dive into the, the hardest parts of your story. But I think it's in that work that you see the uniqueness by which God has created you. And in turn, we get to be a part of human flourishing. Paul talks about this in uh, his letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2 verse 10 where he says, for we are his workmanship. That, that Greek word there gives the idea of not just speaking and God creates, but it has a little literal tangible working with his hands, that we are his workmanship. So you, are, you are crafts that he has made, created in Christ Jesus, notice here, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Meaning that God worked to create you so you could do work to show him, and he's had this work for you since before you were even born. He has something for you, and it's unique to you and to me. But for many of us here, it starts with our identity. We haven't done the work, and therefore our work isn't really life-giving. It feels like bad work. I want to ask you as we dive into today's text, uh, what, if you've read the New Testament, what would you classify as a bad job in the New Testament? And I just want you to think about it out loud. Uh, if you've, if you've re read any part of the New Testament, you'll probably know, but if you haven't, that's okay. But obviously, the job is tax collecting. That being a tax collector in the New Testament is like seen as horrible, that if you had that job, it is a bad working job. 
Uh, it's basically like if a, a tax collector from the IRS today fused with a, like a really sleazy used car salesman <laughs> and they became one person. That's what a tax collector was in the first century. Shearer has this quote from his commentary on Jewish uh, culture in the first century, where he says, in the rabbinical writings, they, being tax collectors, are classified with robbers. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are bracketed, meaning they're joined together with sinners. This shows the common attitude of the Jewish people toward them. They were considered to be renegades, who sold their services to the foreign oppressor to make money at the expense of their own countrymen. And in the first century, Israel was under occupation by the Roman Empire. And there's some estimates that the Romans were taxing people on everything to the point where 75% of their earnings and production was taxed. But they asked local people from the places they occupied to be the tax collectors because they knew the inner workings of that town, village, or city. They knew the families. They knew who, who was who. They knew who had what. And so they incentivized them with this. You get to tax whatever else you want on top of that, and that will be your earnings. And so depending on the tax collector, you could be taxed at over 90% of what you produced. They're terrible, right? <laughs> But I want to ask the question again, was tax collecting bad work? Was it bad work? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> I don't think Jesus saw it as bad work. I think Jesus saw tax collecting from a very different perspective that was more rooted in who we are, that was more rooted in our gifts, callings, and anointings. And it had less to do with the role that we played and more to do with the kind of person we were in the role. You see, there's two examples of Jesus interacting with a tax collector in a personal basis. I wanna give you both stories really briefly. The first is in uh, the eyewitness account written by Matthew in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. Now, uh, this is a really brief verse, but there's so much uh, to unpack here. One, uh, where is Jesus coming from? What's the context? Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, it was a small kind of dinky town in northern Israel. And, and while he was there, he, he, the people around him didn't want him there anymore. So he's, he's moving on to the next space of ministry that, that his work is calling him to. But in his hometown, he would have seen the tax booth every single day. As people came in from where they were working and they were bringing in the goods to sell, the tax collector would have been there to collect their portion of it. And so imagine Jesus every day seeing this young man, Matthew, or as the other gospels, Mark and Luke, his original name is Levi, as Matthew is sitting in his tax booth every day wondering, what am I doing here? And he just sees Jesus and he's longing for more and he knows he's made for more. And as Jesus walks by to leave his town to really never look back, he looks at this, little, this young man and he says, follow me. And Matthew's like, he's like, young me. He's like, I quit. <laughs> and he just walks out. 
And most of us read this story and we say, oh yeah, he's leaving because tax collecting is bad work. It's a bad job. You're, you're not able to do God's will there. But I wanna argue that's not why Jesus was calling him away from that role. That's not why Jesus was calling him away from that job. It's because that role and that job compromised Matthew's callings, giftings, and anointings. And Jesus had something far greater for him in his life. And therefore, I would also argue that some of the skills he learned as a tax collector were utilized when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. That Jesus is like, I need you to follow me, to walk closely with me, because some of the skills you learned over there are going to be used to record a story that 2,000 years from now people are still going to read. But the question is, is did he leave because the job tax collecting was bad? I would argue no. That's the first instance where Jesus did call a tax collector to leave. But what's the second one? Let's look at Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, because in Luke's account, Jesus encounters another kind of tax collector. Beginning in verse 1, he, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, Jericho uh, was uh, uh, coming out of a mountain range, and it narrowed uh, like the pathway as people were heading from the east to go into Jerusalem. And Jesus is on his own little journey to Jerusalem. The, the, the latter half of Luke is all a recording of Jesus' road trip to the cross because he's got work to accomplish, fulfill, that the Father has set out for him. But I want to highlight the word there, passing through. The point that Luke's making here is, is his goal is not to stay in Jericho. That's not his initial goal. But he's passing through, a crowd's following him, and we see more in verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Oh, man. Zacchaeus is a beautiful name, by the way. I don't think many of us know what it means, but uh, it, the, it's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Zechariah. And Zechariah, that means Yahweh remembers or God remembers. And the irony of his name is, is he feels like everyone else has forgotten him. And I think I sense that there are people in this room, you feel forgotten. You, you feel like you're invisible in your, in your places of work or where you're supposed to produce, or, and you feel forgotten. Notice here, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. That line there, chief tax collector, it's the only time in the entire New Testament that someone is called a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus is the only one in the, in the Greek New Testament where we get to see someone being a chief tax collector. It means that not only is he tax collecting, but he manages a lot of tax collectors. It means he's in an important role of leadership for the Roman government, and even more than that is he was rich, and probably because he was a chief tax collector, he was extorting more money from people. But if I were to ask you, why do you and I work? I think if we're honest... Our two answers would be to accumulate wealth, to make more money, and to gain status and leadership, right? I think that's why a lot of us, if we're deep down honest, that's what we want out of work, to, to, to be higher up in leadership and to make more money. And by the way, in and of themselves, those aren't necessarily a bad thing. But for Zacchaeus, if they're the only thing, he's not satisfied. It's empty. He feels hollow. He has it all, and yet is a man who's emotionally, relationally poor. 
And so notice here in verse three, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That word there in Greek, the seeking, gives the idea of he's striving. It's not that he just wants to see Jesus with his eyes. This is like a last shot for him. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, the crowd is not, it's not even just that he can't make it through the crowd. The crowd, like a set of really good offensive linemen, are intentionally blocking him because he's one of those tax collectors. He's the worst. He's, he's a pariah. But he was small in stature. Now, um, a couple things. Some of you are sitting there right now, and you're like, Zacchaeus was small in stature, much like you, Joe. I know you were thinking it. <laughs> and I just want to let you guys know that in the first century, I would have been like an MBA-sized or person, all right? Uh, the average height of a man in Palestine in the first century was five foot five, and I'm like close to five seven. So <laughs> I would have been dunking on everyone in that day. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, by the way, if Zacchaeus is small in stature, they only record that because it's super, it's important. Uh, remember, writing in the ancient world was a really expensive hobby or practice. You, you, it cost a ton of resources to carve into pottery or stone or to write on papyrus. And so the fact that they record these little details about his appearance is really important. You don't see a lot about people's appearances in the Bible. But the fact that he was small, probably like, I mean, I'm just saying he's probably half of my height. <laughs> Just imagine this man. He probably not only is small physically, but he feels small as a person. And, and I just, I can't, I can't stress it enough. He has everything you and I might want. He has all the wealth you can accumulate in that day and age. He has the form of leadership. He's moving up, but he's not satisfied. He longs to see Jesus because he thinks there's got to be something more. So he does something incredibly humiliating in verse 4. He does two acts that are, would have been horrifying in his day in the first century. In verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about, Jesus was about to pass that way. In the, in the first century, you don't, uh, men of stature and, and, and leadership, they don't run. Um, they, they move slowly and dignified. It was really important. And by the way, you don't run because you don't have pants or shorts or underwear. So in order to run, you have to hike up your tunic. <laughs> and then, by the way, climbing into a tree was seen as an act only for children. And dignified men in leadership don't do that. And also, again, no underwear. People below were having a little bit of their own show. <laughs> But for him, he's fought for everything else in his life and none of it's worked. So he's like, my reputation is, is worth nothing to me now. It's Jesus or nothing else for him. And notice here, and when Jesus came to the place of the sycamore tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Uh, remember what Zechariah, or Zacchaeus' name means or Zechariah? means God remembers. And it's really special that Jesus uses his name here. And I know for a lot of us, we feel forgotten 
but I want to let you know Jesus remembers you. He sees you at work. He sees you as you're trying and pushing and fighting. He sees as you're battling, and he, he, he's calling you by name to, to recognize you. And the other thing is, remember, he was initially just supposed to be passing through Jericho. His plan wasn't to stay, but notice what he says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. I believe for a lot of us in this room, we think Jesus only wants to pass through our lives. I know oftentimes that's what I believe. And I feel it just coursing through my veins here to tell you, Jesus wants to stay at your house. He wants to be a part of your life. He wants to sit at the table. He wants to be a part of the world you live and in the way in which you operate. He doesn't want to just pass through your life. He wants to be your life. And he's showing Zacchaeus here that you are worth staying for. You are worth it. And notice here, so he hurried. Again, men move, in verse six, men move very slowly when they're in a dignified position. So he hurried and came down, Zacchaeus did, and received Jesus joyfully. Notice in verse seven, and when they saw it, they being the Pharisees and religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They all still believe tax collecting is bad work. But in one of the rare examples, Jesus, most of the time when the Pharisees are grumbling about him, he will respond to the Pharisees. If you notice in this text, he does not respond to them. He does not answer them. He does not call them out. This is about Zacchaeus. And what I love is, is Zacchaeus recognizes the heart of Jesus, and so he responds. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I, uh, the, the tense in the original language there for those verbs gives the idea that it's going to be ongoing. Zacchaeus is not going to just give, his, give half of his goods this one time or restore his wrongdoings fourfold one time. This is going to be his lifestyle moving forward. And as far as we can tell, by the way, Zacchaeus never leaves his job as a tax collector. There's no Jesus saying, come follow me, leave this behind. None of that. He stays in his role as a tax collector. And the question I want to ask again is, is, is tax collecting bad work? Well, not if you're Jesus' kind of tax collector. Not if all of a sudden he reorients your heart to the work you're doing, and next thing you know, Zacchaeus recognizes, I sit in a prominent role of leadership, and I can, instead of living out the culture of extortion and greed, I can now live out a culture of generosity and human flourishing. I can utilize my role to further Jesus' kingdom. And for some of us in here, we feel like we need a job change, but I wonder if what we actually need is a heart and mind change about the job. Because if Jesus is in that role, the amount of things we can accomplish through him would amaze us. But I come back to my original question. What's the difference? What, what, what it separates uh, Zacchaeus, who's called to stay in his role as a tax collector, from Matthew, who Jesus calls to, to leave that role, to follow him? 
And sadly, I just want to tell you that myself with the microphone, I don't have the authority or power to tell you. It takes that deep work with Jesus walking through him where he gets to highlight your callings, gifts, and anointings, and then invite you into whether it's staying in your current role or moving on. He gets to invite you to say, you're going to accomplish my work in that place. In closing, I want to share a story with you. Uh, many of us know Martin Luther King Jr., the reverend. Uh, I, like, ironically, you know, he had a significant role within the church but he's most known for the work he did for civil rights outside of the church. Or many of us know uh, Mother Teresa who, uh, of Calcutta, who, did, who again had a role within the church, but that was expressed through caring for people outside of the church. Or many of us know Nelson Mandela, who fought against apartheid and, uh, and ultimately suffered many years for it. And I wanna ask you, what do these three men and women have in common? Well, outside of the, the fact that they did a ton of work for human flourishing and thriving. They lived out that call of work. Outside of that, they, all three of them are actually Nobel Peace Prize winners. And many of us know uh, that the Nobel Peace Prize is one of the most prestigious awards a human being can win in this life. But many of us don't actually know the origins of the Nobel Peace Prize. You see, the Nobel Peace Prize and all the Nobel Prizes were originated from Alfred Nobel. Uh, he was a Swedish chemist in the 1800s, a brilliant man, a ravenous worker, so intelligent uh, beyond uh, his years, and he ended up being so like, just vigilant that he uh, registered more than 350 patents in his lifetime. I haven't even registered one. And through his intellect and his tenacity, he ended up accumulating a vast sum of wealth as an inventor and manufacturer. But that isn't why he created the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prizes in general. That originated, uh, rumor has it, from an, a bizarre incident in, 19, in 1888, excuse me. His brother had died in France. And, uh, and a French newspaper actually confused Alfred's brother with Alfred. And so they ended up printing an obituary for Alfred Nobel, but he hadn't died yet. So he got to read his own obituary. And while reading it, he saw the headline which said, the merchant of death is dead. And the obituary would go on to say that he had grown rich, creating new ways to mutilate and kill. And as he read his obituary and recognized this is how I'm going to be remembered, something came, became clear for him. See, many of us don't know that outside of the Peace Prize and the Nobel Prizes, Alfred Nobel is actually the creator of dynamite and many other explosives. T today, he's known as the father of modern explosives. And initially, his invention was meant to, to relieve the work of many workers who, who were trying to connect people over vast di uh, distances. But over time, it was used in conflicts and in wars. And Nobel was looking at his obituary, and he recognized, that's not how I want to be remembered. That's not the legacy I want to leave. And so he made the decision at that moment towards the end of his life to devote the rest of his wealth 
to establish these prizes that award people who do the work for human flourishing. And the thing is, is Alfred Nobel didn't stop being a chemist. He just became a new kind of chemist. And I just want to highlight the miracle of the fact that you have Alfred Nobel, who literally was known for violence and death. And today, none of us know him for that. We know him for peace. This man changed his legacy. And I wonder if you and I got to read our own obituaries. What would we think about our work? What would we think about how we changed the world? Because all of us do. We change our worlds every day. What would we see? What would we read? What do we wish it would have said more of? What do we wish it would have left out? I can't tell you whether Jesus is calling you to change your role because it's bad work or if he's calling you to change your bad work into good work through a mindset and heart change. But I do know that Jesus wants to enter that space with you. And he wants to write a kind of legacy that would move uh, you into a place where you feel like, man, you'll look back and say, I changed the world for good. So we're going to do something kind of strange. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. If you're comfortable, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye in your, in, your, in your head, I want you to imagine that you're in a safe place, a place of shalom, a, a place where you feel free of concern or worry. And I want you to imagine that Jesus shows up in that place with you. Whatever you think Jesus looks like, he may look like the main actor from The Chosen. He may look like a giant golden lion walking into your living room. He may look like just a warm feeling or a mist or a cloud, but whatever you think Jesus looks like, I want you to picture that he shows up. And I want you to picture that he opens a newspaper with you. And it has your obituary on it. And I want you in that moment, and just in your mind's eye, I want you to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to see? And I want you to just let whatever picture, lyric, phrase, I want you to let that come to your mind's eye. I want you to hold it. Jesus, what do you want me to know? And as you sit in that space, holding on to what he has wanted you to know, whatever came to mind, I want you to ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to do with that? How do you want me to use that? And I want you to let whatever person or picture or place pop into your mind. And just hold that with him.
Jesus, I thank you. That if we have breath in our lungs and a, a heartbeat in our chest, there is still more of our story to be written. We get the chance to change the legacy even today. Like Zacchaeus, like Alfred Nobel, like Matthew, God, we get to change it. But I think, Lord, it starts with the work that you're calling us to do inside of ourselves to join in with you because you do not call us into independence. You only call us into more dependence. You don't call us away from relying on you. You call us into deeper reliance on you. And the truth is, Lord, I avoid that work because it's hard, scary, broken, unlinear. <laughs> And yet, God, I know that for every person in this room, you have a role for us to play that you've created since before time began. And it starts with the work in us so you can accomplish the work you wanna do through us. So would it start today? Because legacies aren't changed in a day, but the choice to is. Would you give us that word? What do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do? And would you give us the trust and the courage it takes to live it out? And would we be a part of advancing your kingdom, even in some of the darkest, coldest places on this planet? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say thanks so much for coming to worship today. We're so honored to be with you. I want to invite you back next week. Danny is going to be closing this series on the work, and you do not want to miss it. We love you. Lord bless you. See you next week.